Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your paralegally sentient host, Robert J. Marks. Artificial intelligence developers sometimes sell their wares like carnival markers. They can be sincere, but they're often naive. Sometimes, though, they might be legit, but always beware of the hype. Generally, expertise in one field does not translate to expertise in other fields. George Gilder, for example, one of the co-founders of Discovery Institute, says that Elon Musk is a gifted entrepreneur, but a retarded thinker. <laughs> so his expertise does not, does, does not expand as far as George Gilder goes. Uh, take another example. Another example is Jeffrey Hinton. Now, I've known Jeffrey Hinton professionally. I've known of his work for decades. He's a brilliant AI researcher with an incredibly big ego. Hinton was pioneer in the development of deep learning artificial neural networks, but he had no formal training in radiology. Now, radiologists are the medical doctors who treat diseases using medical imaging by looking for abnormalities in images. They're the ones that go to the light screen and they, they clamp up a negative of a CAT scan and they look at your lungs and say, ah, there's a spot, there's something wrong with it. After some initial good results using AI, deep learning neural networks, to detect these abnormalities, Hinton became a carnival barker. In 19, I'm sorry, in 2016, he said, this is a quote now, we should stop training radiologists now. It's just completely obvious that within five years, deep learning is going to do better than radiologists. Now, he said this in 2016. Then he said, well, maybe 10 years. I don't know. Well, 2016, over five years have, have passed. And like all new AI, the limitations of deep convolutional neural networks pioneered by Hinton were not yet vetted. They weren't vetted when he made this forecast. Hinton turned out to be very, very wrong. According to the website STAT, quote, the number of radiologists who have been replaced by AI is approximately zero. In fact, there is a worldwide shortage of radiologists. Radiology has proven harder to automate than Hinton imagined, unquote. Another AI application possibly marketed without domain expertise is a lawyer app marketed as do not pay. And this is available at do not pay.com. The app, which is a robot lawyer, promises to quote, fight corporations, beat bureaucracies, and sue anyone at the press of a button. That's a quote. Quote, fight corporations, beat bureaucracies, and sue anyone at the press of a button. That's pretty easy stuff. In small print below the hype, we read, this is always in the small print, do not pay, it's not a law firm, and it's not licensed to practice law. But, hey, take your robot app and your cell phone to court, make sure your battery is fully charged, represent yourself, and you can be your own lawyer. And that's, that's, their, that's their selling point. So here's the question that we're going to talk about today. Is do not pay's publicity the same as a carnival barker, or is there some sort of substance here? There's some people that don't seem to care whether it works or not. Uh, these are the people who are attorneys who have sued Do Not Pay. Do Not Pay was sued by human lawyers, not because it gave faulty advice, but because it did not have a law license. Joshua Browder is the founder of The Robot Lawyer. Uh, what's going to be interesting is to see if he takes in his little app 
uh, to court and wins the lawsuit against the seasoned litigators suing him, I don't think that's going to work, but we'll, we'll see. So that's the question today. Will technology like do not pay robot lawyer ever replace lawyers in the courtroom? To talk about this from a legal perspective is our guest today, Richard W. Stevens. Richard is an attorney who is a fellow of the Bradley Center. Uh, Richard, welcome. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Dr. Marks. It is always fun to talk to you. Um, Here's a trend that I've seen in my lifetime. Professional fields have shifted to hire new low-level workers. In academia, we hire lecturers. We have some lecturers in my Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering whose job is to teach, and they teach a lot of classes. Why do they do that? So that research professors have more time to do research. In medicine, nurse practitioners now handle routine maladies so that medical doctors can spend more time on complicated cases. This hasn't happened in the legal profession. Consider, for example, the simple task of appealing a traffic ticket or suing to get damage deposits back. Uh, uh, To do it right in court, you still need a full-fledged lawyer who has passed the bar. You can't use a paralegal. Paralegals can't appear in court and represent people. I think that this is what do not pay is trying to do with lawyers. So what do you think? If a, pro- if a properly trained paralegal can handle simple cases like traffic ticket appeal, they, they can, of course, since they're not a member of the bar, why not an app like do not pay? Now, Richard, you argue uh, that more complicated legal cases have a complexity that can't be handled by an app. But before we talk about that, let's talk about, uh, let, let's talk about maybe a pocket lawyer helping you with traffic tickets or trying to get your legal deposit back, uh, or even, even licensing a paralegal to go in and help you repre- help represent you in those cases. Aren't these simple enough where they, they could be handled by somebody like that? Well, okay. So what's the definition of a simple case? Um, and uh, th- this is going to be sort of a, a theme perhaps. And I, I actually, I won two parking ticket cases for myself. But you're an attorney. That's no, no, I was 20. Uh, I was 21 long before I ever thought I'd ever go to law school. I was a computer science guy at UC San Diego. I won the first one, but I I, want to address your, I want to address your question uh, straight on. A simple case would be one where it's a box check. It's as simple as a box check. Do you have XYZ? So for example, driving without a license. Yes. Box check. Does the person have a license? Yes or no? Okay. Binary. Pretty good, right? So if he doesn't have a, he or she doesn't have a license, then uh, you're driving without a license. We're done here. How about without a valid license plate or without a valid registration? Okay. We got those. These are box checks. If you can do it as as simply as a box check, and it doesn't have to be yes or no, but you know, something you could break down and completely define the set of possibilities and did not require um, anything other than an objective fact, physical fact, piece of paper, or photograph, something. If you could do that with uh, with the case, then that would be considered a simple case. So I would imagine describing these cases as a simple decision tree that isn't too deep, you know, maybe two or three layers. Exactly right. That the, that the robot app could go down. That's what Do Not Pay does. Exactly what that does. Uh, do Not Pay, I, I looked it up. I, th- I think I wrote an article on it. Pretty sure I did. Yes, you did. By the way, by the way, that that that's on Mind Matters News, and we do have a link to uh, Richard's article on the podcast notes. Right. Okay, go ahead. No, no, that's fine. Um, appreciate that. Uh, but 
so it was fun to learn about how they did it. And indeed, it was a decision tree. And if you can define everything within that, and those of us who are software guys understand that when you write software, you have to know what everything's going to be or it's or something's going to go wrong. You have to know every possible flow, possible, whether it happens or not, it's another matter. Okay, so uh, so that's that. But I, I want to give you an example of a case um, that uh, do not pay would not do well. Okay, so here's... Um, this is back when, long before I was in law school, I was at UC San Diego. It was my first semester there. I transferred there from University of Southern California. Uh, and I transferred there and I went to the bookstore and I was buying books. And so I, I went into buy books and I parked at the, um, the medical school parking lot. You were allowed to do that, but it was a two hour meter. Uh, correction. I think it was a one hour meter. Anyway, uh, one hour meter. So I, I plugged the meter correctly, put the money in, went into the bookstore. I got the books. Uh, the line was longer than I had hoped, as it usually is before you, when you're buying books before class. Anyway, I got out, and I, I knew I was close to the edge. I was wearing a watch, an analog watch. Think about it. And I ran back to my parking uh, space because I wanted to get my car out of the parking because I knew it was one hour. I was probably two minutes late. As I came upon the car, the, the, uh, the lady who was given the parking ticket lady was there, and she was writing a ticket. Okay, so she had her pad in her hand, and she's writing the ticket. And I came up to her, and I said, "Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, you could see I paid for the thing. I, I just, I, the line got long. It's my first day here. Um, is there any way, since I'm here now, and you haven't put the ticket on my car, is there any way you can take it back?" And she sort of smiled a little bit. She says, "Okay," and left. Okay, so um, about. Three months later, I get a letter in the mail saying there's a warrant for my arrest. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's called a bench yep. warrant, a bench warrant for non-appearance. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, it meant that, they, that I was supposed to be in court on a certain day and didn't show up. And this is in California. So other states may be different, but that's how that worked. So um, a friend of mine actually turned me on to the California Vehicle Code. And he says, hey, take a look at cer uh, this certain section. And I looked at it and we looked at it together. Well, it says in the California Vehicle Code that a ticket is not valid unless it is put affixed to the vehicle. Right? Okay. So I went, so, and it wasn't affixed to the vehicle. So I went down to the court and I, I, I remember walking in there. You know, and and the young lawyer, assistant uh, DA of some sort, comes up to me and says, "What are we doing here?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Why are we litigating a parking ticket? I mean, come on, I got things to do." <laughs> and I said, "Well, uh, it was uh, it wasn't properly given, and I and I don't want to pay the ten dollar thing. And not only that, um, but uh, ten dollar fine. But not only that, there's a warrant for my arrest, and I don't want that out either." And he goes, "Oh, come on, really?" I said, "Yeah, really." Oh, man. Okay. So they had brought the ticket lady to the courtroom to testify. Now, you know, sometimes the cops don't show up for things. Well, the ticket lady. <laughs> so you think you're wasting your time, counsel. You're wasting her time, too. Anyway, so here she comes and she sits and and, and so the uh, – the, 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 the prosecutor, you know, does a direct examination of her and asks her, you know, when she joined the force and all these various things. And it's like, did you issue this ticket? Yes, I did. Blah, blah, blah. And then that was it. And then they turned to me. Do you have any questions? And I did. I had two questions. I said, uh, ma'am, do you remember me? She says, no. She, I said, do you remember my car? She says, no. No further, no further questions. And then I turned to the judge and said, may I make a statement? 
and testify on my own behalf? And he says, yes. And I said, and I told him the story that I just told you, exactly what happened. I came out. She didn't put the ticket on my windshield, and it was never affixed to my vehicle. And according to the California Vehicle Code, it has to be affixed. Therefore, I'm not guilty of this thing. Now, is that a box check case? Sure sounds like it. Ah, but it turns on what? It turns on whom you believe. Ah. Because she submitted the ticket as though it had been put on my car. But when asked if she remembered, well, she didn't remember. But that's not, that isn't a box check anymore. That's like, well, I don't know. Well, how do you do an I don't know? And then I testified, the question is, should I be believed? I mean, what, right? I mean, I'm a college kid trying to get out of a $10 ticket. So should I be believed? And how do you program that? What's the box check? There's no box check. So this is where- It's literally he said, she said, right? Correct. And and, and to her credit, she, she did not try to make the case more than it was and say, well, yeah, I remember doing it and all that. She didn't. She didn't lie. She simply didn't remember, and she'd submitted the, the t- apparently submitted the ticket as though she'd have fixed it. Maybe she just turned in her book or something, not realizing she'd taken it back and never put it on. So uh, I suffer the consequences of that. And but so but the, but the, the issue is in that little tiny parking ticket case, it turned on credibility of the witnesses and whom you believe. Wow. So now, what is do not pay going to do with that? That's a good question. I, I, I can't defend that. I, I, I agree that it depends on the credibility and the personality of the people that are testifying. You know, you know, Richard, there's a great book. It's called Talking to Strangers. And it talks about the credibility of people when they tell the truth and when they lie. And they, they did. They looked at judges. And a judge says, I will not sentence a man or a woman before I look them in the eye and, and talk to them about the crime they have committed, because that tells me whether they are repentant or not. And it turned out that this was a very ineffective way to uncover the truth, this idea of trying to trust somebody or not. So in a way, when you represent yourself, you have to be, if I could say it, a good actor, a good representative, a, a, a person that gives a good uh, a good presentation that's credible in order to win. That's what that's what needed to be done in your case. And you're right; that's not something that can be done by AI. That's that's an excellent point. Now, let me tell you about my other case. I did win that. By the way, the judge turned to me and he was he was very cordial and he says, um, "Well, young man, you know that the the, the burden of proof is clear is uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, and I have to say I have reasonable doubt that that ticket was affixed to your car. So you, you win." And I thought, wow, legal system works. Cool. Uh, the second one wait, was- Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. That, was, that was beyond a reasonable doubt? I thought that was just, just reserved for murder cases and stuff. But no, no. even traffic tickets? At that time in California, it was. It's no longer that, but it was at that time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Cool, huh? Yeah. So, yeah, it was. that's how it was treated. And that was the, the test applied. Now, uh, I'll give you my second one because it also highlights the issue. Parking ticket. I was uh, I was writing a book at the time for the DC uh, bar, DC jury instructions book. I was editor for twenty five years, but this is when I was writing it, and I was using the Alexandria Law Library in Alexandria, Virginia. And parking was hard to come by, and I parked on the street. And you had, to, you know, you only had two hours to park on the street, and then you had to, you couldn't stay there because they'd come and mark your tires. Yes. And if you stayed there, even if you plugged the meter, they'd give you a ticket because you were there for longer than two hours. So I knew this, so I set my alarm. And every hour and 45 minutes, I went out and moved my car. I don't usually had to do it once a day because I didn't stay there that long, but I needed more than just two hours. So I did this over and over and over again. On one occasion, I did it. 
Um, and then I came back out and found a ticket on my car. I had moved it timely. I had not been there over two hours, but she gave me a ticket. I say she because I found out who it was later. And I so I took it to court. And I and, and again, I uh, ended up, they, they brought her on. And she testified, and and she testified that she had, uh, you know, that that she had marked the vehicle and all that. Uh-huh. Um, and I asked her if she remembered it, and she says, "Well, I kind of do, but I mark a lot of cars. I'm not really sure." And so she was kind of equivocal again about whether she could recall. So then I testified, and I told the story exactly as I told you. That is, I moved the vehicle, and I said, and "The way you know is that the white mark she put on my tire was not where it would be if she came by and marked it, and the way she does it." Okay, and I explained. I've seen her do it. She drives by in a little vehicle, and she's got a little chalk thing, and she marks the tire. I've seen where she marks it. This mark wasn't there. I noticed it at the time because I was concerned about this ticket. And so I explained that that you know she couldn't have marked the tire and found that I was there too long. She just gave me the ticket anyway, even though the mark was in the wrong place. So okay, so now whom do you believe? I mean, I I I describe what I saw as far as where the mark was on the tire. There's no photograph. She remembers, you know, giving the ticket because I had been there too long and she'd marked the tire, but she, you know, she couldn't really tell me, tell you much more than that. She wrote the ticket. She affixed it to the vehicle. So that wasn't a problem for her. And, but I testified to what actually happened and why I wasn't. And again, I was found not guilty there, but the the, the decision is whom do you believe? I provided testimony from personal recollection. And you could test that personal recollection by asking me questions. You know, where were you standing? How do you know? You could test her personal recollection. And then it's a very human endeavor trying to figure out, okay, which of these two people is correct? Not computable, not box check. Interesting. So uh, here's what you're saying. For simple cases, maybe you can use do not pay, but you should also take acting lessons. (laughs) What do you think? I wasn't acting. I was telling the truth. (laughs) But again, according to this book, Talking to Strangers, if you're a good actor, you could really fool a lot of the people a lot of the times. I suppose. I suppose. Well, but, but you know, that's that's part of the system. The, the, the legal system depends upon uh, the uh, – it, it truly depends upon the, the basic honesty of the population. Uh-huh. You know, when you take take an oath to tell the truth, you're, you're basically calling upon this, this fundamental – promise that we make that we're going to t- that, that we are going to be good citizens even if it's not always in our best interest to do so uh-huh. that's actually what it's asking you to do and you have to have I have to tell you I believe you have to have a pretty religious viewpoint to say you know I'm not going to lie because uh, that's bearing false witness yep or something like it it's certainly deceptive it's certainly it's it's not being truthful it's not being fair and the deal is we all are supposed to be fair and treat each other as we want to be treated and with that means telling the truth not t- twisting the twisting the facts or lying. So if that's in, in a situation like this, if you if you're complimenting your wife on the outfit, that's a lie. It's okay, but the rest of them no. So that that's what you know. A, a lot of the problem I think is 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 whether people are going to tell the truth or not is probably the bigger challenge than whether we can automate some of this stuff. But certainly uh, there there are very few uh, simple cases if there's any human. Uh, decision-making, any human um, believability that you have to look at, or human recollection. That is fascinating. I, I'll, I'll show you a story that I have. I was a expert witness in a patent litigation case, and it was tried in that beautiful courtroom in downtown New York City, right next to the old World Trade Centers, next to Wall Street. Uh, really, really beautiful 
federal court with big columns on the side. If you've ever seen a movie that had litigation in it in New York, you've seen the front of that building because it's so photogenic. Anyway, I, I went in and uh, we were sitting down and we were doing this patent litigation and I was I was scheduled to go up and testify. And uh, my attorney uh, that, that I was representing uh, leaned over and whispered to me, he says, be careful. He said, opposing counsel has had acting lessons. Mm. I thought that was just fascinating. Is, is it true that some litigation attorneys take acting lessons in order to present their cases more authoritatively, more convincingly? Yes, it is true. And um, in fact, uh, for, some, for some, they really ought to. <laughs> because as some people in in professions and you know you've seen the variety i used to be a, a software guy with with uh, with you know dealing with software computer science people and there's a there, there's a sort of personality that comes with that line of work um you know and there's a certain kind of person who wants to be an accountant uh, there's a certain kind of person who wants to be a transactional lawyer that's a different kind of personalities and some people who are in litigation don't really have a personality to stand and deliver and so they kind of have to they have to get it. They have to work on it. So it's not evil that they do that, but uh, but it's a truth. Okay. Now you are you argue in your piece that more complicated legal cases have a complexity that can't be handled by an app, and this is this is beyond personality. Um, computers and thus AI are restricted to be algorithmic. Are court cases algorithmic from the viewpoint of the lawyer? Mm. Well, and, okay, so. Algorithm, as as we understand, it's a couple of different meanings. Um, if, if you think of uh, algorithm means uh, a, a series of steps to solve a problem, yes. Well, then actually, a lot of legal things are algorithmic in that way. The question is whether they're computable. That is, um, you know, can you write a, can you write software to do what you're going to do next? Which means it is algorithmic. Yes. Okay. Yeah. If if it's computable, uh, um, but. Sometimes people will say algorithm. In fact, doctors will use algorithms, as you as you may know, but they use the more informal meaning. In other words, they have a checklist of things to check. It's more like decision tree. They call it algorithm, but it's really decision tree. Um, but 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 algorithms that that would co- that would compute the result of something, and so um, it's not really. For example, a litigation lawyer. You know, my job starts with information gathering. You know, yes. well that's that's kind of tough. You have to sit and listen to a human. <laughs> And understand what they mean, understand the nuance, understand the context, get get past perhaps cultural or language differences. You have to go through documents and try to figure out you know, how they work, what do they actually mean, what was the context where they were made. Um, you have to figure out what the other side is going to say about all this stuff. You have to look at what uh, you know, what legal theories, as we call it, or legal doctrines. You know, is this libel? Is this slander? Is this theft? Is it fraud? When you know those kind of things, try to figure out what it is you're dealing with. Those are all analytical things that are are deduced from from prior experience. Um, then you always look at not only the claim on on your side, but what's the other side going to say? Right. And you have to think like a human. Okay, what's that? What's that guy going to do? What's that girl going to do next? Then you have to think about, okay, how, how am I going to persuade somebody that this is true? For example, I, I've developed a, 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 a sort of a, a Richard's rule of litigation. Uh, the Richard's, one of, one of two or three I came up with, one of them is this. Whoever has the simplest story wins. If, if you have a really complicated, convoluted story, even though it's complete truth, you're likely not to win against somebody who has a simple sound bite that uh, kind of resonates with people. 
I've seen it over and over and over. You have to. So that's part of our job then is to try to figure out, okay, how can we package the information, not lie about it, but package it in a way that's understandable um, to a human. They say, oh, I see what you mean, as opposed to, huh, I can't follow you. Okay. So you have to be able to persuade. And well, what is it that persuades a judge or a jury? Or, hey, what persuades ChatGPT? Um, I actually tried this. I, 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 I developed a case and kept presenting it to ChatGPT, adding more facts, adding more facts. And first, ChatGPT told me, no, nah, I can't really decide. And then later it says, well, you don't have enough evidence to make the decision. I mean, it goes back and forth. You have this conversation. Well, persuading ChatGPT, well, what does it take? Um, and, and so, you know, and then you have to figure out what other kind of evidence you want, what kind of witnesses you're going to have. Uh, if, you're, if you are, are, are they going to be persuasive when they testify? Very human stuff. None of it computable. Interesting. Yeah, that's one. That, that's one of the cases. Again, I, I'm I'm not an attorney, but uh, it seems that one of the things that a, a litigating attorney needs to do is to be creative. And artificial intelligence doesn't have the ability to be creative. Creativity, in this sense, uh, is defined as responding to a situation which you haven't seen before. And I think one needs to pivot and make um, midstream corrections, depending on what the, what the opposition is throwing you, what the witnesses say. I think this is the reason that commanders in the field for military defense in, in the United States um, military, I think that this is why their job can never be replaced by AI, because they are continually on a batter, battlefield looking at situations which nobody has ever seen before. Same thing with CEOs of big corporations. Things are shifting, and they're shifting in a manner that nobody has seen before. What do you do? You have to be creative in order to figure figure that out, and that takes domain expertise and creativity. Uh, and that creativity packed on top of that domain expertise allows you to make good decisions and warrants the payment of big bucks. Or in my case, medium-sized bucks. Uh, <laughs> to, uh, okay. To uh, – to, to highlight exactly what you're talking about, you know, having to be able to shift along along the lines, this Arizona this brief I've written for a council to uh, to present to the Arizona Supreme Court um, upcoming has, has this uh, this situation. This is not the key situation, but it's in the case. A witness to an auto accident saw the oncoming car cross over the double yellow line and hit the trailer in the opposite side of the of the street. So, okay, uh, th- that's what the police report said. The witness. The witness told the cop, the cop wrote down, that the witness saw the vehicle coming and then crossing the double yellow and hitting the trailer on the, on the oncoming trailer. Okay? That's in the police report. Two years later, when asked in person, is this what happened? We said, no, I didn't. They wrote it down wrong. I didn't say that. I said that the trailer drifted over in front of the other vehicle. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. What do you do? <laughs> what happened here? See, the, did the police write it wrong? Did he change his testimony? How do you decide that? How do you compute that? Well, I guess the only way to do it is look in the guy's background and see if he has a reputation of a liar. Uh, Assuming he doesn't. But, the, but let's assume the cop doesn't have a reputation of being a liar either. Now what? Right. By the way, is, is a cop repeating evidence presented to him, um, isn't that hearsay or does that apply in the case of policemen? It is hearsay, but it is it is admissible under the exception, under exceptions against hearsay. There's a bunch of them. One of them is oh. official, official reports and things. Okay. Okay. So I guess it's something that that's something which is totally not decidable is what you're saying, right? Well, it's not, it's not that it's not decidable. It's not computable. You, you have to figure it out. 
And in this particular case so far, we're taking up the Supreme Court on another aspect of the case, but so far the courts have held, well, that witness changed his testimony. He recanted. That's the term they used. Now, see, when you're AI and looking at your generative, looking at you know language and trying to figure it out, if you say a witness recants, that triggers a, a legal thinking like, okay, they said A and now they're saying not A. That's recantation, right? Yes. Uh, that's, you know, it's not, I, I said, that was said before, but now I'm saying that's not true. This isn't recantation though. The judges called it recantation, but it's not. It's, he's saying the cops got it wrong. Right. Recantation is when you say something is wrong and then later you say something was not wrong. Yeah. It's, it's when you, when you, when you, when you contradict yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. Basically. When, so, when, so yeah. the, the, this was filtered through the policeman, so it isn't recantation. Yeah, okay. that's my argument, but the judges held it was recantation. See? No, so, no, okay, no. so I, I think the judges are wrong, but uh, they're, they're the judges. They've won so far. So, you know, would AI do any better? Oh, no, no. I don't, I, I don't know why it would. I mean, I, you know, if, if, if opposing counsel uh, were able to state, if the state's prosecution counsel were, were to characterize it in their documents that the AI is going to read as recantation, and it seizes on that, and it doesn't have my, my documents in opposition don't somehow cancel that, then next thing you know, the, the AI thinks, oh, yeah, well, it's re he recanted because the document said so. And if that's all it's doing is looking at documents, Generative AI, right? It's all doing is looking at documents. Well, it just picked out the words from there. How could it be wrong? Gotcha. It's, yeah, it's non-trivial. Let me ask you, can you think of any cases where do not pay would assist a, uh, a novice person in a legal case? Oh, I suppose. I, I think in some ways um, it, it, it might have two effects. I mean, one, it might just help the novice organize his or her case. And again, that's what lawyers often do. Um you know, uh, and, and that's an important function of lawyers, and, and and paralegals could do it as well. Actually, as a paralegals could do for you, they could they could help organize the case so that the facts are all there. You got the right documents that you need, uh, whatever it is that you need, pictures, whatever it is you're going to do. It may prompt you to walk you through it and make sure this is done. Uh, done. And also, if it if it has any intelligence to look at what this, uh, the con controlling statutes or controlling rules are, it might be able to help. Say, hey, um, you know. Th this is the aspect that seems to be open, uh, undecided, or there's no evidence for this, or the other side's lacking evidence. If you could do it, sort of like uh, what's that? What's that tax? That tax system everybody uses. I don't, but everyone else does. Oh, TurboTax. Yeah, TurboTax. You answer all these questions, and then it figures out you know where to put the data. So you could you could have a do not pay system that assisted you and did help you present the case coherently, and perhaps uh, isolate where where in the statute or in the rule. You uh, you know you you, ha you have an argument. They might be able to do that. I think that would be helpful. So let me let me ask you this, and you kind of touched on it there. What would happen if the roles were reversed? Could a artificial intelligence app act as a judge in some cases? Clearly not in all cases, because they have to weigh who's telling the truth and things. But could uh, could AI act as a judge in some cases? Just learn the law and apply it blindly. In fact, I've heard some people from Congress purport doing this. That's what, you know, that's, that's what sometimes um, people want judges to do is to apply, just apply the law. And I'm, I resonate to that. That's what I want them to do as well. Uh, and the, the only thing is, though, um, if applying the law is a box check operation, then sure. I mean, then, yeah, yeah, a machine could do that. 
but a lot of cases are not box check. And if you watch Judge Judy, uh, the Judge Judy shows, um, even, it seems like they're simple, but they aren't. They, you know, they're really complicated, these things. What, what's your favorite uh, legal television show? Oh, I don't <laughs> I have you to met, tell you, you, you've mentioned Judge Judy. I just wondered. Uh, it, if yeah, it, it. It, it's only because I've been I watched her show a few times lately, um, and uh, it's, it's interesting to see. But as my wife will will say, what I usually do is stop the show in the middle and tell her they got this wrong. This isn't how you do it. <laughs> I tell you, it, it's it's rough to have an expert. We I sometimes watch movies with a friend of mine that used to be a policeman, and we'll be watching a TV show and. Uh, you know, there'll be um, a, a SWAT team storming a, a building and he's, they wouldn't do it that way. It was mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, they, they would, they would spread out. They wouldn't go on together. But the most interesting one was a, was a friend that I had a good Christian friend at the university of Washington, who was a, what do they call bird special specialist, ornithologist, I believe. Or, yeah. Ornithologist. Or, ornithologist. And, uh, he says his wife says he ruins movies for me all the time. They went to out of they they went to out of Africa and they heard this little bird going deep 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 or something like that. And uh, her husband said, "That's not an African bird. That's a South American warbler." <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so to- totally ruined it. So it sounds like you might uh, you might ruin some of the legal cases that you watch. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 I kind of do. I kind of do. But uh, but. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite, but I've I've been interested in some of them. Uh, you know, certainly uh, some of the ones in the old, in the, in the back in the day were good. But I think the the, the thing about the law that's fa- I found fascinating actually is that every case every case is a human story. I don't care if it's an insurance insurance contract interpretation case, an insurance opinion case. I've done some of those. Those still there's a human story. And, uh, you know, human beings uh, and money or futures or, or uh, relationships, all these things, uh, it, it matters to the people. And so uh, in a lot of ways, that's probably the, the most fascinating part of the whole thing is the human stories behind them all. That is fascinating. Well, I tell you, I, I do know that technology affects the, uh, the legal profession. When I was doing my expert witnessing, this will tell you how old I am. But it used to be we had to read all of these papers in the library looking for prior art, which is what mm-hmm. you did back then. Right. And um, I, I had a student that says, oh, we could just uh, take PDFs of these and scan them. And the lawyers got so excited that they that they didn't have to read everything, that they could literally take these documents and scan them for prior art. And, of course, now, like you said, that's something which is which is used daily. So that's technology. Do you see any application of AI in the legal profession? Well, I, I, it depends on what AI is trying to do. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the hype is this notion that they're going to be they're going to be judges or they're going to be lawyers and all this other. But AI can do uh, do other things. Any kind of pattern identification, um, or certainly scanning millions of pages of documents looking for yes. you know one word or one phrase, uh, one reference. Um, and if you're pretty um, sophisticated doing that with your with your software you might be able to find some interesting stuff in what is otherwise acres and acres of pages i uh, worked on a case involving a power plant explosion back in 1987 and uh, i i was given the task as a junior lawyer to go down to the microfilm repository and look at about a hundred thousand pages of documents <laughs> um, oh geez and yeah. uh, and i you know, but then there wasn't anything there, but somebody had to look at them. Well, a computer could have done that yes. to see if there was something, there were particular things we were looking for 
in particular boxes on particular pages, but they were, you know, they were buried in there somewhere and you had to look for them. Well, the computers are great with for that. And that would be a useful thing. And you could have a nice sophisticated search algorithm, not just Boolean, but you know, the, the pattern recognition, the fuzzy logic kinds of things that would help pull out some, some possible candidates for further uh, evaluation, things like that. Okay. So, so to point you to areas of interest might be one application. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, uh, Richard, any final thoughts on this? No, I, I think it's a fascinating question to see what AI can do for the, the legal profession. Um, and I, I think, though, that people need to have not just skepticism about it, but actually think about if you start to believe AI systems and you, and you expect them to be right, I think that's kind of the problem that, that you know, if you start to assume they're right, I think it was it Noam Chomsky recently came out yes. with whom I probably agree on nothing except the weather. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, said you know he said you know that you know think, thinking that the AI is is this uber mention you know this all powerful thing is really really misunderstanding it and one one should not trust everything that AI says just because it's AI. The problem is that people are increasingly doing that. You go on Google, you go on ChatGPT, it gives you an answer. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Professor Marx did go to Africa and investigate the Bonobos. <laughs> okay, I thought I kept that under the. Uh, I, I thought I kept that out of the news, but I guess not, Richard. <laughs> okay, well, great. Uh, th- thank you, Richard. This this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we've been talking to Richard W. Stevens. He's a lawyer and a fellow of Discovery Institute's Bradley Center, and we've been talking about what AI lawyer apps can and can't do, what AI can do to help the legal profession. Really interesting stuff. So until next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.